You're listening to KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The following is a broadcast of Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event. The seven personal stories you are about to hear were told at the Cuneic Hidi Northern Light United Church on January 9th, 2024. Our MC and host for the evening were Crystal Briette and Summer Custer. The theme for the event was What the Hell Am I Doing? Juno Montessori School was our beneficiary. Live music was performed by Jeff Kirsch and Margie McWilliams. Lydia Krause. Originally heralding from LA, Lydia has spent the last decade exploring different parts of the country and has called Juno home since last February. Most of their time is filled with building things out of wood, saying hello to dogs, hiking our beautiful trail system, and learning how to be an adult. They have been attending mudrooms religiously since they arrived in Juno and are grateful to be able to share their story tonight. Let's welcome Lydia. I had the absolute blessing of being raised in a family that had a pop-up camper. And as you heard, I grew up in Los Angeles. So every summer when my brother and I would get out of school, um, we'd set up our pop-up camper and go camping up and down the West Coast. Um, And... Basically, that taught me the really fine details of everything that it takes to go camping. For me, everything from the tent, the sleeping bag, the firewood, the fire starters, everything like that is for me like the phone wallet keys dance that we all do in the morning. Um, So I knew everything about camping and it's something that I love to share with my friends. Um, So my junior year of college, when I found out that three of my best friends had never been camping before, I saw a perfect opportunity to share something that I love with people that I loved. So, of course, the only time that worked in all of our schedules was the day, in fact, the morning or the evening right after my last final exam. And I went to engineering school and I picked biomedical engineering, which is, of course, something that I think being raised Protestant taught me to do, the suffering. Um, And so um, I was buried mind, body, and spirit in my final exams. Um, and so I didn't really have a whole lot of time to help my friends prepare, but their roommate um, assured me that they, she would be able to help them get all ready, and I just had to show up and, and do my thing. So the day came around, I finished my last exam and just sighed a big sigh of relief, and um, got in my car, did my phone wallet keys dance of throwing everything in the trunk of my car and got all my stuff ready, and I went and drove around the neighborhood to pick up all of my friends. Um, and just to give you a little context of them, they're people that get, start getting uncomfortable when it's around 65 degrees inside. So, um, so basically we drive about an hour and a half. Um, we were living in upstate New York at the time, and uh, we were having a great time blasting all of our tunes in the car, and we show up to the campsite, and I lickety-split, just like my dad taught me, set up my tent um, and then was ready for a walk because I had been, I was ready for some fresh air after my finals and all of this exhausting time. 
Um, so my friends, I said, do you want me to set up your tent? Do you want me to get the fire going so you guys can do dinner? They said, no, no, we got it. We're, we're experts out here. How hard can it be? <laughs> so I go for a walk, and like it does in the afternoons in the, in the fall or the spring in New York, the, a thunder um, and lightning starts coming in and get that cool, sweet snap of rain that comes. Um, so I walk around for about an hour and a half, and I get back to my, uh, get back to my tent, and our campsite, and I show up, and their roommate Amy has showed up with her two, day, two, two days ago adopted dog named Toby, and tent parts everywhere, and there's a tiny little wisp of smoke, nothing to do with a fire, and you know, I'm, you know I, I signed up for this, I'm going to get myself together, I'm going to help them build their tent, so I get myself together, I... Um, Basically, they've built up a lot of embers over an hour and a half. Um, so I get them, let them get, the, or help them get the fire started and set up their tent and all these things. And of course, right on cue, as we get the fire going, it starts to pour. So we're all getting pretty miserable at this point. Um, and not Toby, the the Jack Russell that my friend has just adopted, not not excluded from being uncomfortable with the thunder and lightning. Yeah, um, and he doesn't know anyone, and he's really scared out of his mind. Um, so we cook, well, cook some potatoes on our newly made fire um, and eat them kind of raw. And then, like you do when you're camping, and everything is delicious because you're camping, and uh, two of my friends, Jordan and Rachel, decide to go for a walk in the pouring rain, if that tells you anything about the level of tension in the space. And um, so my friend Corinne and I and Amy and her newly adopted Toby sit in a very small tent and decide to play cards to pass away the night. And Toby is shaking like a leaf, and Corinne and I are really worried about him. And all of a sudden, their roommate Amy grabs Toby's head and just makes visceral eye contact with the dog and says, Toby, look in my eyes. It's going to be okay. (laughs) And I'm a huge dog lover. I know this girl is going to get her face bitten off. Um, so I look over to Corinne, and we make that kind of eye contact that you both know, what the hell are we doing here? Um, and so I decide this is a great moment for me to go over to my one-person tent, which is all set up nice with my sleeping pad and all this type of thing. Um, so I curl up, and the sound of the rain and the cold there always knock me out. Um, so I fall asleep pretty quick, and right about 2 o'clock in the morning, I hear a, and I think, oh, no, it was, the, it was the wind. I'm not doing this. And all of a sudden, uh, the, I hear a little bit more shaking. And I hear, Lydia. And I'm like, oh, God, fine. OK, so I roll over. I open my tent. And my friend is there. And she's saying, everyone, has a, everyone is cold. And Corinne has a migraine. We need to go home. And I look at my watch. It's 3 o'clock in the morning. And I think, hell no. But being the friend that I am, I decide to roll up my wet burrito of a tent at this point, throw everything in the car, and we drive an hour and a half home in complete silence. <laughs> and so we get back to, our, um, back to our neighborhood, and I send everyone home, and everyone dries off and, and gets and sleeps it off, and we never spoke about this experience again. <laughs> so this was my friend's first and last camping trip. And although we never spoke about it again as, a, as friends, and we did stay friends, um, it's a story that I think about a lot. Um, and I think what I'm gleaning from it these days is that it's okay to have your inside friends, and it's okay to have your outside friends. <laughs> and if you want to bridge that gap, 
bring some more rain gear. Thank you. Our next storyteller is Juliana Cornette. Juliana moved to Juneau from the central coast of California about a year and a half ago, and her life here has come to mostly revolve around fish. She works at the NOAA Alaska Fishery Science Center Akbe Laboratories. That was a mouthful. There's a lot of California representation here, too. Um, woo! <laughs> Where summers include wrestling Chinook at a remote field station, and winters include extracting lots of fish DNA. In her free time, she also paints fish, running her own business as an artist and a freelance scientific illustrator. Welcome, Juliana, to the stage. Last winter, around this time, I was going through a breakup. And it really hit me hard because all of a sudden I realized that the person I thought I was falling for was not at all who I thought he was. And that image shattering sent me into this downward spiral of questioning my judgment and my worth. And it was winter in Juneau. Like, you couldn't have just waited until Folk Fest sent me dancing off into the summer, but no. And as I spiraled into this dark place, fairly new to Juno and without the support network that I have now, it got to a point where I was asking myself, why am I still in Juno? What the hell am I doing here? And out of all the things that I had looked forward to in the upcoming spring and summer in Juno with this person, I latched onto one thing in particular. He was supposed to teach me how to fly fish. And I can still remember the moment I was sitting in my car after work and had this realization that I could probably teach myself how to fly fish. Because I knew that to make it through the winter in Juneau, I needed to find something to look forward to in the spring, something to focus on to distract myself from the fact that I drove to work every morning in complete darkness. After scraping ice off not just the outside of my windshield, but usually the inside, too, because that's just how wet it is here. And I drove home from work in complete darkness, often after repeating that fun ice-scraping routine. And my office had no window at the time, so it was just this rotation of darkness or whining fluorescent lights. And when I tried to escape Juno for a sunny vacation in Mexico with my family, I came back with food poisoning and was sick for a month. So fly fishing was the natural solution to this, right? So I got on Google and was like, what? <laughs> There's four different types of line thingies and you tie all of them together with different knots for each of those connections and they all come in different sizes and that's not even getting into the rod or the flies or any of that. And I almost gave up. But instead, after hours of researching things like what different rod weights mean and how many different little fishing pack gadgets is at least the bare minimum. I got all my gear and tried on my waders and thought, I look kind of cool. No idea what the hell I'm doing, but maybe I at least look like I do. So I drove out to Sheep Creek and clumsily assembled my rod. And I'd watched my YouTube videos, you know? So I get out there and cast out into the water a couple feet, just a couple feet. But it was out there, and that's when I realized that none of the YouTube videos I'd watched had gone past this point. <laughs> and it was out there, and I wanted it back in. And now we're going to know who the fly fishermen in the audience are, because they're about to laugh at me. 
looked down at my rod and was like, there's a reel. So I reeled it back in. <laughs> Did that a few more times, a little cast out into the water, foot or two, reeled it back in. And eventually, some other fly fishermen showed up a little ways down the beach, and what they were doing looked nothing like what I was doing. <laughs> Their big, graceful loops overhead and the way that they quickly stripped line back in without touching the reel. So I left. I got in my car and I left. <laughs> and I watched many more hours of YouTube videos. And I took the casting class at the fly shop. And eventually I improved. And over a month after that embarrassing first day at Sheep Creek, I caught my first fish. A sculpin. <laughs> and that was a lot smaller and spinier than what I expected for my first fish. I'd been looking at photos of the shimmering green and cute little spots on spring dolly varden. And this sculpin was no dolly. And it did not want to let my fly go. For those of you who don't know, sculpin are mostly mouth. They've got these tiny, spiky camouflage bodies and these big eyes on the top of their head. They're ambush predators. So they sit there and wait for the prey to go by, and then they have an even bigger mouth to grab said prey or my fly. So every time I tried to pry their mouth open a little bit and wiggle my fly out, it would just clamp it back down. Eventually, got the fly out, but they have these spines on the top of their head like horns, and those horns were firmly tangled in the holes in my net. But eventually, got it fully deflied and detangled. And once I did, you'd best believe I posed for a photo with that sculpin, <laughs> grinning ear to ear like it was a record-breaking king. <laughs> but don't worry, I caught many much bigger, much better fish that summer and fall. And I can still remember my first dolly, my first pink, my first coho, first rainbow trout and brook trout and cutthroat trout. And each fish was just a level up in excitement from that first sculpin. The acrobatics of a trout when they leap into the air after taking the fly, or the adrenaline that comes with feeling the line rush out of the reel when you're fighting a salmon. But beyond the fish, it taught me something really important. Sometimes when you're in those darker places, you don't have to know what the hell you're doing. Sometimes you just have to find something new to get excited about. And that new thing might bring you more joy than you ever thought possible. And might help you find your place somewhere unfamiliar and sometimes lonely. And eventually, you'll get to a point when you realize you know exactly what you're doing. Mark Choate. Mark Choate and his wife's son give full-size candy bars out on Halloween in their home next to the governor's. They share a miniature Australian shepherd named Obi-Wan Kenobi with their daughter, Annie, and son-in-law, Julian, who live out in Smuggler's Cove. Mark's day, night, and weekend time is spent representing injured people as a trial lawyer. He loves learning injured people's stories and telling them to juries. But tonight, the stories will be his own. Welcome, Mark.
I'm on a treadmill in Denver. My wife is in the other room on a treadmill as well. We have not been to doctors for more than 30 years. I do enough medical malpractice cases to where I know probably safer not to go than to go. But, you know, my plan was never to go to a doctor, and that was my plan A, but I thought, you know, I've been 30 years with no problems. Let's get checked out for the next 30. So we go to this concierge medical, and I'm on the treadmill, and I'm running, and they've got these things all over me. And I'm going, you know, I bet they're going to go, this guy's amazing. He's going to live forever. And suddenly, the technician goes, stop, stop, stop. I go, what? And he runs out of the room. <laughs> Comes back with three guys in white coats. They're all looking at the stuff. They're going, does that happen very often? I go, does what happen? Like a flutter in your heart? I go, a flutter? Does your pulse go very quickly sometimes? I go, well, when we work out in the gym sometimes, it'll say 205. But I think my watch is broken. I don't think that's the problem. So um, he says, you have uh, AFib, atrial fibrillation. And we go out and meet the doctor. The doctor's really neat. And he has like, he says, I got some good news and some bad news. The good news is a thousand years ago, in any battle involving swords and axes, everybody else would bleed to death. But you have a clotting factor that's 11 times normal. You'd sit back up and go, hey, I'm okay. <laughs> you know, and I thought, it makes so much sense. We're not fast, we're not strong. But we heal quickly and we visit the widows. You know, so that was, so, <laughs> so that was, so he goes, the problem with your clotting factor is that because your heart's not working correctly, it doesn't get a full motion, blood can sit in the heart. And if that blood sits very long with your my clotting factors 11 times normal, um, it'll create clots and then you'll have a stroke and die. And I, and I went from being immortal <laughs> to going, you betrayed me. <laughs> you have let, you're letting me down a whole lot. The doctor says, well, plan A is go back to Juno, see how it goes. Maybe it'll get better. But plan B, well, you'll have to have heart surgery. So we come back to Juno, and I'd sit in my chair, and my damn watch would be going, you know, 180, 190 for hours, 200. And I'm going, and plan A didn't work. So we fly back six weeks later to uh, Colorado Springs, and we go to what's called an electrophysiologist. It's a doctor that goes up through the femoral arteries on each side of your groin, up into your heart, and then they, with a, they look at a camera and they figure out where the signals are off, and they take a little laser and they build a little matrix to catch, or, catch the electrical signals that are not working correctly. And that's how they fix AFib, hopefully. And I'm really nervous. I don't want to show my wife I'm nervous. I don't want to show my daughter and her husband, Julian, her with us. But I'm worried. 
I'm worried. And so they put me on this gurney and they bring me in the room. It's about 50 degrees. People are wearing all of these weird hats, you know, like they do in operating rooms. And there's maybe 20 monitors around, like you're on the Star Trek bridge. They put about 150 different things on the outside of my body, all over. They can see all the electrical currents on the outside of your heart and on the inside. At that point, I had checked out the doctor and I knew he was an evangelical. I mean, very, very religious. Always, everyone's blessing me every time I talk to him. So I go, doctor, doctor. I give him a piece of paper. I go, my understanding, can you take this word here on this piece of paper and copy it and write it on the inside of my heart while you're there? And he goes, what is it? I goes, well, it's the name of God in Hebrew. And my son-in-law has told me, wherever that word is written becomes a holy thing. So, why not? You know, I'm going in. So, I fall asleep, I wake up, and I feel better immediately. And within about three months, um, I feel better than I felt for years, and I hadn't realized I wasn't feeling well. But if I'm not immortal, and sometime when I do pass, and I suddenly find myself in front of some big doors, and they open, and there's a lot of flames and people going, ah, we've been waiting for you, we've been waiting for you, come on in. You know, and I start going to end, and suddenly, poof, it's like there's a poof, I can't get through. And suddenly, straight up. And I'm there in front of God. And my God looks like an older Mary Poppins because I think Mary Poppins is godly. And um, she'll look at me and go, Mark, really? I say, you have to have a plan B. Thank you. Our last storyteller before we take a brief intermission is Kate Ross. Kate Ross is a 33-year-old queer woman who gets annual seasonal depression but forgets about it every year. She attended Juno Montessori School back when it was called Mayflower Montessori, and now her five-and-a-half-year-old kid is in kindergarten there. She is also a performing artist. You may have seen her on stage recently at Glitz, Cabaret, or last week's new Queers Eve drag show. Welcome, Kate Ross. I'm a yes person. I don't mean that I always say yes to everything all the time, but what I mean is that I always want to do more, have more, be more. Like if I'm at the store and I see a smoked Gouda and that sounds really, really good, I might buy it and say yes, even though I know I have at least five different kinds of cheese in my fridge and they're probably from Costco. I might say yes to having that just one more beer at the end of the night so I can keep dancing with my friends even though the lights are coming on and I know the bar is closing soon. I want to say yes to that next exciting opportunity, that next glittery, shiny thing. Saying yes can be super fun, but it can also be exhausting. So I'm trying to learn how to say no. I feel like I can say no when it's really important. If my kid is running laps around the house with scissors in her hands, I can get her to stop. When that creep at the bar is trying to squeeze past me by putting his hand in the small of my back, 
I can get him to go away pretty effectively most of the time. But I'm trying to learn how to say no for those small things, the small things that you really know aren't a big deal, but they kind of put a feeling of dread in the pit of your stomach, and it might be easier to say yes. Or you might think you're going to have fun with it, but really you know you're kind of overcommitting. I feel like I know quite a few people in this town that can relate to that feeling, especially in the performing arts. <laughs> so yes can be really fun, but it can also get you into trouble sometimes. It has definitely gotten me into trouble, or at least into situations that turned out okay, but could have gone swiftly south. Like the time I was 22, 23, and we were backpacking in Colombia, we had saved up just enough money to go around for about a month, and it was in the off-season. Things were cheaper, um, less tourists. We figured it would be great, right? So we did our planning, basically by reading Lonely Planet and looking up on Google and asking the locals wherever we were, and we ended up at a hostel off the northern coast of Colombia uh, in the middle of the water. Like, I'm not talking like those resort pictures you see of the cute little bungalows like off on their own pier and you're, you know, the five-star restaurant is right down the, the dock. No, I'm talking like you had to get a skiff to get there, a skiff to go anywhere else. And because it was the off-season, it was us, another a Danish couple, and the couple people that were working there. There was no menu to choose from. We swiftly went massively over budget because <laughs> there was no other food to choose from and it rained every single day limiting the snorkeling that we had dreamed of so we ended up cutting that part of our trip short we planned on spending four or five days there I think we spent two to get out of this spot you had to take a skiff right so the next tiny little town on the coast was where you would take the skiff to and then according to my lonely planet guidebook there was supposed to be a shuttle or a bus or some way to get from that tiny little town to the next larger town where there was a regular bus service that could take you wherever you wanted to go in the entire country. So there we are on our little skiff. It was basically like a 16-foot lund. I don't know if it was actually a lund, but that's how I remember it. With our backpacking backpacks on our lap, skipping along through the waves, heading towards this tiny little town. As we get closer and closer, we could hear shouts and, and yelling, and we could see people running back and forth. And I started to feel really nervous. Like, why did I say yes to this entire idea? We don't know where we're going. We don't speak enough Spanish to really feel confident in being able to take care of this situation. As we got closer and closer, I got ner more and more nervous until we got close enough that we could see and hear that it wasn't screams of terror or dread. There was nothing wild or dangerous going on. But in fact, there was a town-wide water fight happening. <laughs> I'm talking a water fight complete with squirt guns, water balloons, buckets of seawater being dumped on crowds of shrieking children. They were having a blast. This was the off-season, after all. They were not expecting a couple of entitled, privileged white girls to come and, you know, need a taxi or a bus to get anywhere. We had no way to get out of this town. No shuttle, no bus, no taxi. Our skiff driver was kind enough to ask around town and see what he could do. So we found ourselves in a situation where we really had no other option but to say yes. And so we found ourselves on the back of dirt bikes heading down a dirt road for what felt like three or four hours, but I'm sure was only 45 minutes. And no helmets, no nothing. I think it took me years to finally admit that to my parents. <laughs> but 
as we were hurtling along this road, and I'm looking over at my girlfriend at the time, and we're just, I mean, laughing and wild-eyed and so nervous and so scared, but also I will never forget the ochre color of those dirt roads as they raced past us, and the, the spots that were darker because of the rain that fell every single day, and the shapes and colors of the leaves as they rushed past and I think that that's the definition of the word thrilling. So we made it to the next town eventually. Everything was fine. It all worked out in the end. But it could have not. <laughs> and I think about that a lot sometimes, especially now that I have a kid. And what happens if she ends up in a situation like that? I hope she'll tell me the truth a little quicker than I told my parents about the no helmets thing. <laughs> but more than anything, I hope she says yes when it matters, but learns to say no when it matters to protect herself as well. Because that's what I think it really comes down to for me the more I think about it. Learning how to say no to the small things so that I can say yes to the big things. Learning how to say no without a litany of excuses and explanations, without having to feel that anxiety and feel like I have to say yes to something or I have to provide that excuse. And I've been practicing. The other day, I started to write a text back to a relative with a whole bunch of excuses about why something just wouldn't work and I'm so sorry. And instead, I was able to just write back, no, it won't work for us, we'll reschedule. And it was terrifying. <laughs> Last month, I was in a show with a good friend and she asked to borrow my eyeliner and I almost said yes. And then I was like, wait, no. And then I started to explain myself, but before I had a chance to, she just said, that's okay. And the relief that I felt from just being told it's okay to say no without an excuse was incredible. So I try to remember that no is a complete sentence. And if you can learn to say no for the things you really want to, it might give you space to say yes to the things that really matter. You are listening to Mudrooms, Juno's live storytelling event, on KTOO Juno at 104.3 FM. These stories were told on January 9th, 2024. The theme was, What the Hell Am I Doing? If you'd like to tell a story at a future event, check out our schedule and sign up at mudrooms.org.
Our next story is Jordan Hollersmith. Jordan Hollersmith moved to Juneau three years ago for a job at the Alaska Fisheries Science Center, researching mariculture and seaweed. Since arriving, she has learned to ski, met some bears, and started a family. Spoiler alert, she ends up marrying one of the characters in her story. Here's Jordan. I was on a Russian icebreaker around 100 miles off the coast of Sierra Leone, which is a whole other what-the-hell-am-I-doing-here story. But no, that day on the boat, a beautiful man told me that these kits existed where you could build your own remotely operated vehicle, or ROV. So it was like IKEA furniture, but for remote-controlled submersibles. And these ROVs could go 300 feet deep which happened to be a depth I was really interested in. See, I was a student at the time working on my doctorate in marine ecology, and one of my professors had developed a theory that kelp, the cold, big, beautiful algae we all know and love, might be hiding in plain sight all over the tropics and subtropics, just deeper than anyone was looking. And I was enthralled by that idea, just picturing warm, colorful coral reefs above and cold golden kelp forests below. I wanted to find some of those hidden kelp. And with one of these ROVs, I could actually get deep enough to look. So six months later, a circuitous route home, made it back to California, got some money from National Geographic, and built myself an ROV. My uh, electrical work was atrocious, but the the thing functioned, and my professor had given me what was essentially a science treasure map. It was a, a printout from his model with an X marks the spot of a location with a higher probability of one of these kelp forests to be hiding. The only thing is that X was off the coast of an incredibly remote island, 400 miles off the mainland of Mexico, the, the farthest off island on a volcanic chain that was uninhabited except for nesting albatross. So pretty hard to get to. So I started you know, pivoting, think of other things I could do with my new toy, when a few months later I got a call from an unknown number. I picked up and it was the Sea Shepherd. So maybe you know the Sea Shepherd from Whale Wars where they uh, chased Japanese whaling vessels or they had that uh, documentary where they chased an illegal fishing boat around Antarctica for a year. It's a lot of chasing. It's um, one of those direct action environmental groups that revels in the eco-terrorist label. So yeah, they called me. And um, it turns out they had heard that I wanted to get to this island and they were gonna go there too. See, it had recently been des designated a marine protected area and they were gonna do what they do best and chase off illegal fishing. And in between the chasing, they were offering me uh, the opportunity to do my science. So it, it was an incredible opportunity. So now I had my ROV, I had my treasure map, I had my unlikely boat. So I um, brought together my team. It was a good friend of mine and that beautiful man from the Russian boat who is now my boyfriend. And uh, we flew down to Cabo San Lucas to meet the vessel. A, repurposed U.S. Coast Guard cutter painted ocean camo flying the signature Sea Shepherd Jolly Roger flag. Like, we were ready. The reality of working with the Sea Shepherd set in just a few days into the voyage. See, um, all the Sea Shepherd boats are vegan, so we were eating a lot of lentils. But that's fine. I love lentils. But it's also a completely donation-based organization, so they were rationed lentils. 
And the crew is mostly volunteers. So the excitable Frenchman who was the chef, I don't think had ever learned about spices. So they were unseasoned rationed lentils. We were starving. And of course, these themes applied to the rest of the boat operations as well. So we did all our ROV surveys off of this little rigid hull inflatable. What that would have the three of us, the skipper, the ROV, hundreds of feet of tether, uh, the computer, a, um, a twister mat that we used for protection, very high tech, they're waterproof. Um, so it was a lot crammed into a very little boat bobbing on the vast Pacific Ocean. It felt very precarious. And one day in particular, it was I was the one under the twister mat piloting the ROV around the schools of sharks that always surrounded us, feeling our little boat climb and then fall off of just this huge bottom swell coming from the open Pacific Ocean as it crashed into these volcanic pinnacles that I was surveying. And I hear my friend nervously asking the skipper, who was a grumpy Polish woman, if she thought we were safe or if maybe the conditions were too much for our little boat. And the skipper's response was that she had no idea. <laughs> oh my goodness, what the hell were we doing here? I had brought two people I loved dearly to the middle of the Pacific Ocean and placed their lives in the hands of these overzealous, underfed, and as far as I could tell, completely unqualified volunteer vegans. I mean... <laughs> We were there to look for kelp, but maybe we were going to die. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it is hard to dwell on death when you're having the adventure of a lifetime. And we didn't find kelp, such as science. We found a lot of other really cool and surprising things. And maybe most importantly, we learned the valuable lesson that you should choose carefully who you go to sea with. Thank you. <laughs>
After my wife and I were married, we decided that for our anniversaries, we wanted to do unique things. We wanted to do exciting things, different things. Things like hang gliding, white water rafting, hot air ballooning, which, just so you know, hot air ballooning is not as romantic as you think. Here's why, two main reasons. One, the basket is here. And so if you look, there's the possibility that you'll die. <laughs> the second thing that keeps it from being really romantic is that in the middle of the basket, about right here, is a flamethrower. <laughs> and no matter how peaceful or serene it might be, if you're about to have that romantic moment where you go, isn't this just the most beautiful thing? <laughs> What? So we decided to go skydiving. And to go skydiving, we, we went to an airfield, and it was a field with a couple of planes in it. And we went to a bunker of a building and signed a huge stack of papers. And then watched a 30-minute VHS tape on how to skydive. And after that, we were apparently well qualified. We also had signed up to go tandem, which means that the instructor is gonna be harnessed to your back, which is good because that means they will pull the ripcord, you don't have to panic and worry about it. But the planes were only big enough for about three people, which meant that my wife and her instructor and myself and my instructor couldn't go at the same time. So her plane went, I watch, she comes down, it's safe, it's good, it's my turn. I get on the plane and we start to climb to 9,000 feet. And I'm looking out a window, my anxiety is building, my fear is building, and I'm not entirely sure I want to be here. And I look over and my instructor is asleep. <laughs> and I think, brother, you better wake up. <laughs> this is not good. And as we leveled out at 9,000, it was as if he'd done this a lot. He wakes up, we harness up, and he tells me the two rules. Number one, when the door opens, I'm to step out onto a platform that is the size of a license plate. <laughs> Number two, don't grab anything. Now, think about this for just a second. The door opens, and I step 9,000 feet. And at 9,000 feet, in this kind of position, you want to grab something. <laughs> and I reach for the wing of the airplane. And as my hand gets close, this other hand comes around, grabs my hand, and the plane disappears. And we're falling. And it is so 
loud. The wind is so loud. I think we're okay because we have safety glasses on, which will protect us. And we fall and fall, and it's hard to breathe. The noise is immense. And then there is this big sound. And it was the parachute. And it opens and it pops. And when it pops open, all at once, all the sound stops. And then Sleepyhead says, good shoot. (laughs) To which I say, thanks be to God. (laughs) And we begin to descend and we hit a thermal updraft and we start to slowly circle down. And as we're between heaven and earth, a flock of birds flies under us. And I think, this is wonderful. And we land, and I have this exhilaration and this sense of adrenaline and excitement and of absolute peace, as well as the complete understanding that I will never do this again. And that was our third wedding anniversary. And 24 years later, on our wedding anniversary, we leave to move here, which has given me the opportunity to share that story with you tonight. Thank you very much. That's a great segue, actually, into our final storyteller, a little bit about hot air balloons. Um, This is a secret fact that I know about our next storyteller. She has a secret wish to have a romantic encounter in a hot air balloon someday, and I'll let you imagine what that might be, and it's not what you think it is. Um, That is not in her bio. She's one of my favorite people. She's our last storyteller. I bullied her into telling a story tonight. Her name is Morgan Johnson. Morgan grew up in the Matsu Valley and moved to Juneau to attend UAS. In December 2019, at the age of 22, she graduated with a degree in environmental studies and a minor in anthropology. Her plan was to go to grad school to pursue a degree in architecture and design, but 2020 had other plans. Since COVID derailed her dreams of grad school, she did what any reasonable recent grad with no business experience would do, and she opened a plant shop. Morgan Johnson. Some of you might know me as the plant lady, and if you don't, I own a plant store downtown on Seward Street. And apparently when you own a plant store, people think that you're, you're, because you're really good at taking care of rare and unusual plants, you're probably really good at taking care of exotic pets. So I've been offered snakes, spiders, tree frogs, iguanas, you name it, somebody's offered me it. And I'd always said no, until Mr. Anderson, the science teacher at the high school, asked me if I would take care of their classroom pet chameleon just for the summer. And at the time, my employee Taylor was there. She was like, oh my god, it was great. When I went to school there, the chameleon would like climb around on us in the classroom and on the plants. Like, we have to do this. It's going to be amazing. Um, they're like, it's really easy care. You just feed it a couple crickets every, every couple of days, and you miss it a couple times a day. So I was like, all right, it's just for the summer. We'll do this. 
So we get her, and I'm posting her all over social media. She is on Instagram, Facebook, and kids are coming in, and they're having a great time. Like, sometimes I'll take her down from the tank and put her on her stick and let kids hold her, and... Um, they're telling their friends, so more kids are coming on like a regular basis, and then summer comes to an end, and Mr. Anderson comes in, and he's like, oh my gosh, she looks so good, she's so happy here, you should just keep her. <laughs> and I was like, you know what, this has been pretty fun, it was pretty easy going, and Taylor was really attached to her, and she was doing most of the care, so I was like, all right, we'll just keep her. A couple more months go by, and then she starts to look a little gray, <laughs> and... I'm like doing all this research and I'm calling the vets, but we have a vet shortage, especially like exotic animal vet shortage in Juneau. And I come to find out that chameleons only live three to five years and Mittens was already three and a half, three and a half years old. So we had agreed to chameleon hospice essentially. And then I get the call. It's Taylor. And she's like, she's dead. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'll be, okay, I'm on my way to the shop. I'll be there in a couple of minutes. And she's like, she's not, she's stuck. And I'm like, what do you mean she's stuck? And when she had died, she didn't just, like, die and curl up in a corner. She had fallen off of the leaves and onto the heat lamp and had singed herself to it. And so I'm on the phone with her telling her to get something from the back to remove her and put her in a box and I'll deal with her when I get there and so I get there and of course the first people come in is a mother and a child like a three and three or four year old kid and they are there to see Mitten specifically and I'm like I'm so sorry she's dead <laughs> and the, the kid looks at me and they're like so should we come back tomorrow like and that is when I understand that children don't inherently understand the concept of death. And I'm like, I am not having this conversation with this kid or any kids. And I change my tune real quick. And I'm like, actually, if you just keep looking, she's blending in. It's a chameleon. They blend in. And I think the mom kind of understood that I was lying. And... They leave, and I look at Taylor and Rag, we're going to lie. I'm not doing this. We're just going to lie about it. And then we're, like, fiercely, like, trying to figure out, like, if there's one in town available that we can get just, like, a replacement chameleon. They all look the same. Um, but because it was COVID, our, our Petco stopped selling live animals, and they don't ship reptiles in the summer. Or, sorry, they don't ship them in the winter because it's too cold. Um, so... That's a whole other issue. End of the day comes, and Taylor's like, what are you going to do with the body? And I was like, oh, just throw it away. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm. I don't really, <laughs> death is normal. Um, and she's like, no, she is an icon. She is a beloved. We have to bury her. And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I live in an apartment downtown and, like, don't have anywhere to bury her. And I was like, okay, I guess I could go out perseverance and bury her. But then I was like, oh, my God, like, a dog is definitely going to find her and dig her up. And that would absolutely be something on Juno Community Collective and and like the body looks terrible it would look awful I was like nobody can see this thing um and there's not like a back of the shop to go bury her or anything like that and so I was like I'll just I'll bury her out Thane like that's a that's fine we'll just put her out Thane but then we go to leave and it is pouring outside um and so Taylor leaves and I was like okay I'll just put it in the refrigerator and deal with it tomorrow 
the next day comes, I'm in the shop. Taylor walks past me to go put her lunch away into the refrigerator, and in slow motion, I can see it. Like, we have this teeny tiny refrigerator, so I just precariously, like, shoved her up in there. And I see Taylor just go to open the fridge, and just the box spills out, the little lizard body spills out. Taylor in tears once again. Now I have traumatized her twice, of course. Um, and so I was like, okay, I really need to do something about this. So then I take her, and then I'm like, okay, I don't actually have any room in my own refrigerator or freezer, and now it's not pouring, it is snowing, because it is that you know wonderful time in November where it's like slushy snow, slushy or rainy snow. And, but it's snowing, and I was like, oh, it's cold enough. I'll just leave her in my car. And it is also now um, high of retail season, or, you know, it's the holidays. So I'm working seven days a week. Like, my mind is going eight million miles an hour. Like, I forgot about her. And so in January, when I go to have <laughs> my, when I go to have my car detailed, <laughs> And I go to pick it up. The guy's like, are you aware that there was a dead lizard in a box in your car? And I was like, oh my God, I had completely forgotten about her. Where is she? And he's like, I threw her away. And I was like, absolutely not. We have to go find her. And so me and this man are digging through his trash to get her body. And so then I shake it back and I'm like, I can't leave it in the car again. So I eat a couple frozen pizzas and put her in my freezer till spring where then I did eventually bury her out Thane. Um, I had somebody ask me why I didn't just let him um, throw her away like that took care of my issue and I think it, it made me realize that like she kind of embodied like all of like the feelings and the stresses I was having of like wanting to be like a good boss and like a good business owner and like just in this constant struggle of like, what the hell am I doing? <laughs> like, I, I'm trying to figure this all out. And I'm really glad that I was able to like, bring her all back together, <laughs> deal with that and all those emotions. Um, we're in a new location now that'll be opening soon. And I do want to get another chameleon. <laughs> and if a couple years go by and you're wondering, um, and, and you come in and you're like, where's the chameleon at? And I say, you just got to keep looking. She's blended in. It's probably because that one's died now, too. <laughs> Thank you. This is KTOO News Juno at 104.3 FM. The stories you just heard were recorded live at Mudrooms on January 9th, 2024. The theme for the evening was What the Hell Am I Doing? Juno Montessori School was our beneficiary. Live music was performed by Jeff Kirsch and Margie McWilliams. Special thanks to Kneak Hidi, Northern Light United Church,
Copa and the Rookery for supporting the event. To Alaska Robotics for hosting our website, mudrooms.org. And to KTOO for bringing each Mudrooms to listeners like you. Join us at our next event on Tuesday, February 13th. The theme is Stepping in It. This program is a production of the Mudroom Storyboard. Alita Buss, Jeff Smith, Kristen Rankin, Crystal Briette, Summer Custer, Skylar Bayer, and Taylor Beard. Have a good night. Made up their minds, they started packing. Left before the sun came up that day. Exit to eternal summer slacking. Where were they going without ever knowing the way? They drank up the wine. They got to talking They now had more important things to say When the car broke down they started walking Where were they going without even knowing the way Anyone could see the road that their walk on is paved with gold it's always summer, they'll never get cold They'll never get hungry, they'll never get old and gray You can see their shadows are wandering off somewhere They won't make it home, but they really don't care They wanted the highway, they're happier there that way